Amen. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, worship team, good morning, church. Good to see you guys this morning. My name is Jeff Skipper, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Um, hard to believe it's already Advent. I feel like we're having holiday whiplash because uh, we're still eating leftover turkey and we're singing, what child is this? Uh, and it's a quick turnaround, just a few days as we rush to swap out decorations and anticipation starts to build. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you kids uh, have already asked how many more days until Christmas. If not, ask your parents that this morning. Um, but there's a sense of waiting in the air. And we're going to feel it build as we go through uh, this holiday season of excitement and impatient longing. And this time of year, we all feel that. I think the world feels that too. The church just has a story to make sense of why we feel that. And as Brandon said a minute ago, we call these four weeks leading up to Christmas Advent, which means coming or an arrival. And it really does capture how we feel as God's people, almost like we're kids waiting for Christmas morning. And he mentioned that tension we feel also. Uh, one of the best illustrations I've heard that captures that tension is Simon and Garfunkel saying Silent Night in 1966. Uh, no, I wasn't alive, but I like old music. Uh, and they sang a version of Silent Night. And, and it starts out, Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright. You knew, know the lyrics. But in the background, you slowly, quietly start to hear a newscaster uh, broadcasting the evening news. At the same time, the Silent Night, they're singing Silent Night. And <clears throat> he's talking about the events of the, of the days in 1966. He talks about Vietnam. Um, he talks about how Richard Nixon... Uh, said we're going to probably be over there five more years. Talks about all of the racial strife going on, Martin Luther King's work. Um, there were some murders in Chicago. At the same time, you're hearing holy infant, so tender and mild. And it perfectly captures that tension of Advent, where we have the Savior child, God with us, Emmanuel's coming into the world. He's bringing peace and hope, and yet he's coming into a chaotic world that's still filled with conflict and disappointment and sadness. And so there's a tension to this time of year. He's come, but we're waiting for him, him to come. He's making all things right and new, and yet all things aren't right yet. And we have a tendency to fall into one ditch or the other. The already or the not yet, Brandon said. We could call it triumphalism on one side, just only living in the already. He's come. Turn that frown upside down. It's Christmas, right? The other ditch we fall into is cynicism. The world is broken. It's terrible, you know. It's never going to get better. Just this defeatist mentality, only in the not yet. And so the challenge for us this time of year uh, is to live between these two comings and honestly reckon with where we find ourselves in redemptive history. And we strive to do both. We're going to sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. And we're going to lean into the waiting and say, come thou long expected Jesus in a minor key. So if you wonder during Advent, why are we singing these songs? They feel sad in a minor key because things aren't right yet. We're leaning into the waiting, right? We're, we're doing both. And so this morning, we're going to start a four-week meditation on the coming of Jesus, and we're going to begin with uh, the genealogy that Matthew records uh, at the beginning of his gospel. And y'all pray for me as I attempt to read this, okay? Uh, follow along with me. We're in this together. We can get through it. I'm going to read 17 verses and I'm going to say these names confidently like I know how to say them, okay? Just roll with it, all right? So this is God's word from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. This is God's inspired word to us right here. 
the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of, I like salmon, we're going to go with salmon, <laughs> and salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. <sighs> Amen. This is God's word. Yeah, standing ovation. Wow, yeah, thank you. That's a lot. Wow. All right. We did it. Ooh, I feel like we should, like, take a drink of water, five-minute break, come back. <laughs> come next service. You'll hear it again if you really want it again. Um, we are all weary from waiting this year. Yes? It's been a year of waiting. We've been waiting for lockdowns to start because we're hearing that they're going to start. We've been waiting for lockdowns to end. We've definitely been waiting for schools to reopen. Amen. Uh, we've been waiting for the election, both to come and to go. Uh, and we're not very good at waiting. I had an Amazon package delayed because Thanksgiving. It was driving me crazy just because I had to wait an extra day or two. Uh, waiting is really hard. But to really feel the impact of Christmas and the incarnation, you got to know the context that Jesus came into. And the Jews had been waiting for a Messiah. Messiah just means anointed one, savior, rescuer. They'd been waiting on this Messiah for thousands of years. I mean, you could feel the sense of waiting just in that, not just waiting for me to get done, but waiting through the generations and generations as we read all those names. I mean, just reading it. Imagine living it. And all throughout history, the prophets had foretold a Savior will come. There's whispers all throughout the Old Testament that there's a, there's a rescuer coming, a hero, who's going to deliver us from oppression and injustice in verse 21, just a few verses after we stopped. Ultimately, he's going to rescue us from our sins, from our broken flesh and ways, our guilt, our shame, our selfishness, our fear. But when you wait for something for so long, you just keep waiting, you begin to lose hope. Bob Marley saying, I don't want to wait in vain for your love. Israel didn't want to wait in vain. None of us want to wait in vain, but it began to feel that way after so long. I mean, uh, Ford read Isaiah 9, right? It's like they were sitting in deep darkness, just almost had given up. 
been waiting so long. This always makes me think of being at a concert. If you've been to a concert, you know the feeling. You showed up at 7 for the concert, and yet there's multiple opening acts. You always think this is the one, right? And you wait, you get excited, and then there's someone you've never heard of. And before you know it, it's like 9 p.m. You've been there for two hours. What was excitement is hopelessness. You're exhausted. You're literally just sitting down. It's dark, and I'm, I'm, I'm like, are you ready to go, babe? You know, let's just leave now. And the history of Israel is kind of like that. There were a lot of opening acts who came and went before Jesus finally came. And each time, the people wondered, is this finally the one? Only to be let down. And look at that list. It starts with David in verse 1. He's the warrior, even as a boy, right? God's poet, writer of the Psalms, most of them. He's a man after God's own heart, the scripture says. He was the great king, and yet he ended up destroying his own family through adultery, murder, and revenge. Verse 1 says, oh, there was Abraham. That was God's first main guy he was going to work through all the way back in Genesis. It says he believed God. He left all that he knew, his home, and he followed God. He obeyed God in many ways, and yet we'd see that he would lie He wouldn't wait for God to fulfill his promises. He'd make kind of a mess of things. You go down to verse 7, you see Solomon, the wisest king, finally. This wise king who's going to bring about justice and righteousness, and yet he was an idolater. And the kingdom is literally torn in two after him. You go down the list, there's, uh, uh, Matthew alternates between there's good kings and there's wicked kings. There's Ahaz and there's Hezekiah. There's Jeconiah, who was evil, and then there's Josiah, who was pretty righteous, and yet all of these were just opening acts, and Israel's let down all the way. They spiral all the way down to verse 11, to exile, to deportation, to Babylon. They don't even have their home anymore. They hit rock bottom. Matthew's painting a picture. And to make matters worse, the prophet stops speaking. If I don't hear from someone for four days, I start getting anxious if I'm texting them. Where are they at? Matthew is speaking into 400 years of silence from God. You know what was 400 years ago this month? The Mayflower landed in America. (laughs) I looked that up. I find that really cool, by the way. But just to put it in perspective, how long the silence was. Since the Mayflower, we haven't heard a word since the Mayflower. Can you imagine? 400 years of silence. No word. No whisper of the Savior. Andrew Peterson, uh, one of his songs is called The Silence of God. He says, it's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. That's the world on the first Christmas. Which means you're not alone if you feel that way. If you feel like God is distant, and he's silent. And your waiting is slowly beginning to turn to apathy and you're struggling. As I read the scriptures, that seems to be the regular experience of God's people in this world. Where are you growing restless? Where are you exhausted and you're starting to try to wiggle out of the waiting? And you're running to false saviors and you're settling for opening acts. Where are you losing hope? Where are you doubting? This is not, I'm not shaming you, right? That's the normal experience of a Christian. Read the Psalms. That doesn't make you a bad Christian if you're struggling that way. But at the same time, faith keeps hanging in there. It keeps trusting. It keeps hoping, looking up, 
crying out, weeping for God to come, even when everything else says bail. That's the setting of the first Christmas that Jesus comes into. And this is what Christmas is all about. It's the only reason to keep hoping. Because it assures us, Christmas says, hey, God hasn't forgotten you. Right? Your waiting's not in vain, and he always comes, and God always keeps his promises. That's what these 17 verses are about. God always comes. He always keeps his promises. And we know at a concert, all it takes is one chord in the dark to change the entire mood. It's like the first chord of Hotel California. Whatever the song is that you say, oh, this is the one. Finally, in the dark, you hear it, and everybody erupts, and you jump out of your seat. And Matthew's starting to hit some chords here. He's writing to Jews. That's who he's writing to here. And he's building a case to show that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting on. And what better way to do that than to grab their own Bibles and say, hey, let's sit down and let's flip through your Old Test- the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament, their Bibles to show that he's the one. And that's what Matthew's going to do. He's going to grab their Bibles. He's going to flip through. And he's going to say, look at all the chords the, the, the main act was supposed to play. Look at all these prophecies he was supposed to fulfill. Let's see if he's really the one. And so he pulls up like Ancestry.com, ancient Near East version, right? And he begins to trace it out and connect all the dots. And this was really important to the Jews because they kept extensive genealogies and records. And where Luke records Jesus's biological line, if you read Luke this Christmas, verses, or chapters 1 and 2, uh, Matthew's more concerned with the legal side of things. He's concerned with Jesus' rightful claim as king. And so he's furiously flipping all through the Bible, and he's pointing. You can picture him. He's saying, look, he's drawing a royal family tree, and he's showing how it all connects in Scripture. And he opens up with two heavy-hitting claims from the Old Testament. First, uh, if you see there in verse 1, he said the Messiah was to be the son of David. So he opens his Bible to 2 Samuel 7, to where God made a covenant with David. And he said, you see, he promised David a son who would sit on his throne and rule forever and ever and be king. And it wasn't Solomon. And it wasn't Rehoboam or Jeroboam or any of the other ones. Look, this is the one. And then he, it says he was to be a son of Abraham. And so Matthew opens up to Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he promises, Abraham, he said, through your offspring, I'm going to bless the entire world. Paul makes a big deal out of that, offspring being singular, being Jesus. Matthew's pointing out all of the prophecies. And you know when you you meet somebody for the first time, the more details, the better. If you've never met them before, it's like meeting up off Craigslist to buy something, which is kind of shady these days, shady things there. Anyways, uh, you know, if I said, hey, just meet me at Walmart, I could be anybody, right? But if I said, meet me at the Legoland Walmart, 3.30 Friday, I'll be parked in the very back of the lot with my lights on in a black truck, not just anybody's going to fit that. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, not only say the Messiah's coming, but it says, here's what he'll be like and here's what he'll do. It's very specific. It's not vague. So you couldn't mistake him when he finally did show up if he hit all of those. And 10 times in the book, of Matthew, Matthew says, this was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. And over 60 times, he quotes the Old Testament in his book so that they know this is the one we've waited for. And in just the first two chapters, Matthew hits a few more of those notes. He says, one, he was to be born of a virgin. He quotes Isaiah 7, verse 14. 
He says the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, this nowhere town from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. In chapter 2, verse 15, Matthew says the Messiah would have to flee to Egypt. He quotes Hosea 11, verse 1. He looks in Jeremiah 31, he says Herod was, is going to attempt to kill all the male babies under the age of two in an attempt to kill the Messiah, which is how all hearts initially react to Jesus. Herod said there's a new, new king in town? I don't think so. We kind of look at Herod and we're like, what a, what a bad guy, but what about you? When a new king shows up and says, I'm sitting on the throne, I'm taking over, how does your heart initially react to Jesus? Until you see what kind of king he is, what he came to do. And then you say, oh man, please take the throne, Jesus. Please. Is he the one for us all? Not just the Jews, is he the one for all of us? Jesus goes on to live a sinless life none of us have lived. He's full, of, look at his life, read the Gospels. He's full of grace, compassion, truth, and mercy. He calms storms, he raises the dead. He heals the broken. He covers people's shame. He promises abundant life. He grants forgiveness. He's strong. He protects the weak and the abused, and yet he's gentle and kind. He weeps. He yearns for us to come to him. He conquers not through worldly oppressive power, but suffering love on a cross to save us from our sins. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death hell, every evil that stands against us, and he says, do not fear. He promises a new righteous record. He promises us new hearts. He promises us a new world. He promises us eternal life. Stop. Reflect on your desires. Say you're not even a Christian. It's the first time you heard any of this. Think about your longings. What do you really long for deep down? What do you really want in your heart and soul? And look at Jesus and all he does and all he promises, all he came to do, all he promises to come to do and ask, is that the one I'm waiting on? Does he fulfill every longing of my soul? Is he what you yearn for? Matthew says he's come. Every other one out there clamoring for your trust and your allegiance is a hustler. But Jesus is the real thing. He never lets us down, Matthew says. Now, that doesn't mean, oh, okay, well, I accept Jesus and everything's fine. I mean, the reality is we're still waiting, right? I mean, we can relate to Israel. There's promises that have not come to pass yet. Jesus has come, but the world is still broken. But living on this side of Christmas, this side of the cross and the resurrection, we wait differently. We wait with hope, like at a concert. When you wait on the encore, it's totally different than waiting for the concert to start. What was frustration at the beginning? Everybody is cheering even though it's dark and the band has already left the stage because there's this like deep assurance that they're going to come finish what they started. Everyone knows it. Right? We wait differently now. This changes the way we wait. And I just want to name three things as we close this morning. First, Christmas teaches us that God can be counted on to keep his word, although how and when he does often looks different than we expect. God always keeps his word, but how he does it, when he does it, looks different than we expect. I mean, that's what Matthew's saying, right? Matthew mentions all these former kings, and Israel expected what? A political king. And that's not what they got. Jesus came as a humble child to poor, unwed parents in a backwoods town born in an animal trough to die. That was heaven breaking in. 
Not what we expected. Because he came to solve a deeper problem than we know we really had. So we, we may not understand what God's doing, but we can't look at Christmas and still interpret what God is doing solely based on how things look. I'm going to say that again. You can't look at Christmas and then continue to interpret what God is up to solely based on how things look. Because we know, in Jesus, we know God's heart. And Christmas shows us God loves to work in unexpected ways. Secondly, we're reminded in this genealogy, listen, when Israel lost hope waiting, they ran to false saviors. They did that as a nation. That's why he mentions the deportation to Babylon. Think of Abraham did it by going to Hagar instead of waiting for God to fulfill his promise through Sarah. Solomon did it by going to foreign wives and and, and being an idolater and so on. And every time Israel ran, they got tired of waiting. They wiggled out of the waiting. They tried to go fulfill it a different way. It always backfired, and we're tempted to do the same. And so Christmas teaches us this. We can't manufacture what, God, what only God can do for us. Say that again. You can't manufacture what only God can do for you. Wait on the Lord, Christmas is saying. Wait on the Lord. Learn the lessons from those who didn't wait. Finally, uh, I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, especially when I get to the genealogies, I'm tempted to skip over them, right? Chronicles can be a long month of CBR, if we're honest. I'll say it for us. You're thinking it, okay? And maybe when you do your Christmas reading, you just hop on to Matthew 2 and say, ah, yeah, all these names, whatever. But if you, if you do, you miss out on a lot of good news. Because this list means no matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, what your social status is, Jesus came for you and he can work in you and through you. And that's good news because this is a colorful family tree. <laughs> Very. I mean, there's adulterers. I mean, this is intriguing. Like, get the popcorn. Let's talk. Let's sit down and watch this. There's adulterers, idolaters, murderers, sexual sinners, prostitutes. I mean, even just the fact that five women are listed is unusual because descent was usually traced through the men as the head of the families. There's Rahab and Ruth. They're Gentile. Ruth was a Gentile outsider immigrant. You got Boaz, who was a rich man. You got Ruth, who was very poor. Tamar, Rahab, and verse 6, he doesn't even say Bathsheba. He just says the wife of Uriah. They're all women of questionable character. All three of them. There's educated, there's uneducated, and Matthew covers all the bases to say, to leave out any excuse about not being good enough because that's the whole point. It's not about being good enough. It's the whole point. It's about his grace that none of our sin is any match for. Right? What qualifies us for salvation and to be, for God to work in us and through us is not our put togetherness, but our need. And that's very obvious in this list. And, and, and this tells us God is not like us. He shows no partiality. He doesn't care where you're from, where you're at on the ladder, what you've done. I mean, this, this would be such an intimidating family tree if it was full of moral superstars. But I can relate to this. I mean, this looks like our own family trees, right? With twisted branches and cut off limbs and other limbs that are gnarly and got put back on. And from that, Jesus grows oaks of righteousness, the Bible says. Brennan Manning, in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, he says this, Jesus came for sinners, for those as outcast as tax collectors, and for those caught up in squalid choices and failed dreams. 
He comes for corporate executives, street people, superstars, farmers, hookers, addicts, IRS agents, AIDS victims, and even used car, car salesmen. <laughs> That's what Matthew's saying. Wherever you're at, no matter what you've done. And one last thing, this list tells us God works all things to the good. He doesn't will evil, but he can take even evil and use it for the good and nothing can stop his coming because these folks did about everything they could to mess the line up. They did almost, I mean, if they really sat down in a room, all these people lived at the same time, they sat in a room and said, how can we screw this thing up? I mean, they tried. How can we thwart God's promises, his ability to do something productive through us, and they couldn't stop it? Still, even with all their messy choices and sins, he still came. He brought forth his purposes. What a relief, right? Because the same goes for us as we wait for him. Matthew's kind of saying we can't mess this up. His kingdom's coming one way or the other. And he can work in you and through you. We have no excuse, Matthew says, to say we're not good enough. And this makes us say with Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. That's where I get when I read through this list and see what he has done through the genealogy and what he did in Jesus and what he's going to do. You kind of reach a point where you say, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I hope that brings you hope this Christmas. There's a Savior for you who loves you. Christmas doesn't mean, hey, it's all right with this superficial happiness. We do have joy, deep joy, but the world's still broken. And so we strive for that tension. Let's rejoice. He's come. He's working in us. He's working through us. And at the same time, we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. Make all things right. Will you pray with me this morning? Oh, Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. Uh, I have to say, when I first read it, I felt intimidated. I said, what what are we going to say about this? And as I just sat on it and meditated on it about the stories that these names and generations hold, we see your sovereign good, faithful, forgiving, strong, steadfast, loyal, long-suffering hand bringing about goodness through all the messiness of history. And we still find ourselves in the midst of the messiness of history because we're broken people and we're sinners and we're in a sinful, broken world, but that doesn't mean you're not working. I mean, the fact that we're sitting here today and hearing this good news is evidence that you've worked through all our messy choices to bring us to this point today, to sit together in this room or to tune in online and hear this gospel. You are good, God. You are faithful. Thank you that you show no partiality. Thank you that the only thing that you expect, the only qualification that you require is for us to show up messy with open hands and say, have mercy on me. Jesus, a sinner. And you embrace us and you begin to make us new. Thank you, Father. Help us to lean into that this Christmas and where we're we're sad, where we're full of shame, where we're waiting and leaning in, I pray that you would bring deep, deep comfort with this good news of Christmas and the promise of your second coming. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So uh, as we go and we wait on the Lord, I hope you've been encouraged. Be encouraged by Christmas that God is faithful to fulfill his promises, but also that he's working through all the messiness and he's going to complete what he started. And so I'm going to throw a curveball and read a different benediction from Jude. From Jude 24, hear this good news. If your faith is in Christ, this is what he's doing and this is, this is your great, great, beautiful future. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's peace.